Join us on October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for the Commonwealth Club Gala as we celebrate outstanding community advocates who, through incredible acts of service and long-standing leadership in their communities, embody the theme of Stand By Me. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host here. Now, at the Commonwealth Club, we're producing hundreds of programs a year on a wide variety of issues, online as well as many in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for more upcoming programs, as well as video and audio of our past events. If you're watching us live on YouTube, Add your questions to the chat box, and we'll work them into our conversation here today. Um, now, I'm pleased to announce, or introduce, excuse me, Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us. This week was a special week. This week, we celebrated National Coming Out Day. And for many of us in the LGBTQIA community, we know the importance of the celebration. And for those who don't know, we take the time out once every year around this time to basically reduce the stigma around LGBTQIA identity. And so you know how important it is on this show that we share coming out stories. Well, today... It's an epic one. The entire program is dedicated to coming out and not just one person's coming out story, but an entire family's. So today we have Jesse Hempel, who is a senior editor at large at LinkedIn and host of the Webby nominated podcast, Hello Monday. For almost 20 years, she has been writing and editing features and cover stories about the most important people and companies in technology. But today, She's here to talk about herself and her new memoir, The Family Outing. Jesse, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's great to be here. Yes, we're going to share so many coming out stories. We're going to share your entire family's coming out story. <laughs> um, you know, usually we will begin with an official coming out story, but I think because we're going to focus about it all hour long, why don't we start with the project? And that is what you call the memoir. Uh, at least. And it sounds like you started the project uh, during COVID or the, the lockdown, at least. But yeah, let's start there. How did this all come about? Um, it's a great question, Michelle. In fact, sometimes confidentially, I still am asking myself, how did this happen exactly? Um, but, you know, in March of 2020, uh, I don't know where you were. I was living in Brooklyn with my wife and our baby, who was about 15 months old. And I thought I knew a lot about who I was. I was a tech and financial journalist. I was a city person. I, you know, was newly married. Like that was my life. And then overnight, everything changed. And there was this moment in Brooklyn, at least where things suddenly didn't feel exactly safe anymore. And I remember that my wife and I made the decision on a dime. We put the baby and our dog in the back of a Subaru and we drove 18 hours to her parents' house in Tupelo, Mississippi, where we took up residence in an upstairs bedroom. And, um, you know, at first during the quarantine, I did the things. I was very social. I did the Zoom trivia night and Zoom yoga and Zoom cocktail parties. And then about two weeks in, I was just so done. I was done socializing. I 
I was depressed. I was tired. I was exhausted. And the only people that I wanted to talk to were my family members. And that, um, I mean, quite frankly, Michelle, that was weird. Um, or at least it struck me as weird. And here's why. Um, if you knew my family when we were growing up, you wouldn't have imagined that we would be people who would be close to each other. Um, it felt fairly dysfunctional. I was really, just really wanted to leave, to get out. Um, but here we were um, in the pandemic seeking each other out. And I thought, you know, the reason why we're so close now, like literally talking every day, even though we're quarantining in five different houses in four different states, is because we went through this coming out process. What would happen if I used this quiet time, which doesn't seem to be going away, at least not as quickly as I wanted it to be? What if, what if I used that time to try to ask that question, not just of myself, but of my family members? And that's where the project started. I really, I thought, what if I take my journalistic skills and direct them toward the people that I love the most and think that I know well, but actually maybe don't know that well at all? Hence the project. So let's go back and we'll start with you, uh, your childhood and, and leading up to your coming out. I mean, what was it like? And um, not just what was happening to you in, you know, basic growing up sense, but what was happening to you in the realization that you're different? Um, you know, I was, uh, I always knew that I was gay. I didn't have a name for it. And I was born in 1975. So I was, you know, a young child in the 80s and the early 90s. And I actually lived in a pretty progressive community for a lot of that time in, in the middle of Massachusetts. Um, and there were gay people in that community. It's just that we never talked about that. Um, and I had no vis visible um, gay people that I knew of around me. Um, you know, I, I, I remember that in the sixth grade, I, um, I had this best friend named Becky Orr and I, it was Valentine's day and I made Becky this over the top Valentine. And I knew in my heart, I was like, maybe this is not great that I want to make Becky this Valentine. Um, but I remember on Valentine's day, I gave it to her. I said, Becky Orr, I love you, Jesse. And I held my breath and she gave me one and it, you know, it said the same thing. And I was like, Yes. And then she said, oh, and let me let me show you the one I've made for David. That was the boy she had a crush on. It was like five times as big. And I thought, I'm in trouble here. And I, I can't name it. I can't describe it. But something is going on here. Um, and and I should say, like, as I grew in my teenage years, I mostly thought, well, maybe I can make it go away. Like maybe maybe or maybe I can put it off as long as I as long as I possibly can. And I thought. Well, okay. I, you know, I was, I was taking in the news. I was taking in the coverage of HIV and AIDS. And I thought, well, the only gay people I know seem to be men who live in cities. So I guess when I grow up, when all the rest of my friends do the things that I think they're supposed to do, like get married and have children and do those things, I guess I will go and live with a bunch of men in cities. And I don't want that to happen to me, but maybe I can just put it off for a long time. Um, but you know what happened actually is, um, I went to college at a place where I suddenly had a lot of really positive role models who um, had a name for what I was experiencing. And I was lucky in that way in that as soon as I had, you know, I, I went to Brown University, it was sort of like a gateway drug in, um, in, in some respects. Like as soon as I had 
a path to ask the big questions and a safe place to be among peers who are also asking them. I came out of the closet to myself pretty expediently by the time I was 18 or 19. Um, I could go on, but I want to make this a conversation. (laughs) Oh, there's so many ways in which we could, you know, pick the ball up from, from there. And, you know, I, I feel like coming out to yourself, right. I, I love the way that you had introduced the memoir and talking about everybody has a secret or secrets of theirs and you include your entire family. Um, did you ask permission from everybody, you know, to, to kind of put their coming out stories in, in a memoir? Yeah, but Michelle, it's also, it might be worth just taking a step back to, to like highlight the thing that I thought was most interesting about the whole process, which is that it happened for all five of us, like a, you know, like a chain reaction in a very short period of time. Um, and, and that, that piece shaped, I think, what happened after. And so, you know, I came out at 18 or 19. And um, I'll tell you, I came out to my parents in a car. I thought that was a good, safe place to do it. I was buckled in in the back seat. Dad was driving. Mom was in the passenger seat. And I remember my mom, she cried, she cried. And then she said, you know, I think your cousin Charlie is, is gay. Um, he was 11. Um, but she said, he's so emotional. Um, incidentally, he did turn out to be gay, but it wasn't because of that. Um, but then she said totally the right thing. She said, I love you so much. And we're going to figure this out. So then my dad, he's like staring straight ahead, hands on 10 and two. He says nothing. Um, Next morning, I'm in the kitchen. He wanders into the kitchen, uh, pours himself a bowl of cereal and says, oh, you know, I I thought I was gay once too. I was like, okay, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, you make choices in your life. I married your mom. And then he walked out of the house. And that was this pivotal pivotal moment for me because I, I had that realization. I think a lot of people have like, oh, my parents, they're not just my parents. They are adults with their own lives and their own orientations and their own philosophies and their identities are expansive. And then I also had the holy shit moment where I thought, oh, golly, I think my dad might be gay. Um, But it was another three years before my dad we like to say he got kicked out of the closet. Um, and that is really what happened. Um, Michelle, he, my sister was home from college. She was on her computer. I am with her boyfriend and, um, somebody popped up in the screen, um, who my dad had been chatting with and it became clear very quickly that this was a, a lover of some sort. Um, and so there's my dad trying to stuff his life back into the, like, you know, my dad was a, well-respected lawyer in a nice suburb in Massachusetts. And he was just trying to keep that life together. But like this, this truth about him, just like, you know, it, it would not be contained after that point. And so, you know, what happened then is, so my father comes out, it, my parents, therefore, in an attempt to figure out what to do about their marriage, begin therapy. And this leads to my mother's coming out. Um, and I would love to sort of take a step back on that one in a second around the idea of coming out. But for her, it wasn't sexuality. My mother finally dealt with a series of crimes that she had been a party to in her adolescence. 
And so my, you know, my parents were having this parallel outing process. And in the midst of that, my sister announces she's bisexual. And then my brother in short order says that actually he is transgender and um, called me up and he said, when I come to your grad school graduation next week, um, I'd like you to use the male pronouns. And, um, you know, in that, um, in five years, everybody in my family came out about a significant thing in, in his or her life. Um, I, that, that was the thing that, that I was curious about, not the events or the facts themselves, but what that unleashed, what we did then and how we each found a path back to ourselves and then therefore back to each other. Michelle, I don't think I answered your question at all. No, 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 no. I, I think, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I you did. Go. You did. I mean, again, like how part of it yeah. was, like I said, where do we go from here? Because one, one aspect of my question was, okay, so who do we share next? Whose stories do we share next? Or like, you know, uh, how did you decide that? John, back to you. Well, I want to go into that, that three years between when you came out and your dad came out. Um, what was going, I mean, in all the conversations you've had with them since then, as well as what you observed at the time, what was going through their minds? I mean, was it like, okay, I'm in a, forgive the term, normal family with one gay sister or one gay daughter or whatever, or were they all thinking my secret's either going to be pulled out of me or I should be coming to terms with this? So what was kind of cooking underneath, I'm mixing metaphors, what was kind of going on underneath the, the, the surface? It's a great question. It's a great question. And I think that um, to really understand what was going on, I think you have to understand something about the nature of what it means to live in the closet, which is that very often it's not even as simple as you know that you are gay, but you are hiding it. But in fact, you are deceiving yourself, right? And when you are deceiving yourself so fully, um, in whether it's, you know, you know you are gay or in my mother's situation, you, you, knew, you know that there is a series of violent acts so awful in your childhood that you just cannot bring yourself to look at them. You push that all down. But you know, when you push that all down, you don't feel well, you don't feel great, and you don't always act well to each other. And I say that because you kind of need that context about my family. By the time we got to the place where I was in college and coming out, um, my mom had had bouts of depression for a lot of my childhood that had impacted us quite badly. And my father had been totally absent, just so checked out, so checked out. And um, they were clearly not happy with each other, but not in any dialogue around that. Everything just felt like it didn't fit and it didn't work. And so when I talked to them then about what the impact of me coming out was on them, you know, my father in particular said that it started a conversation for him internally, that he was like, well, shoot, if my daughter is going to start to address this, who am I not to address this? Now, um, you know, one of the things about coming out is that the reason we keep these secrets, um, especially from ourselves is because often um, the, these truths, we fear that these truths are going to be in direct conflict with other values that we hold dear and other pillars of our identity that are so important. And so my father, you know, he was the son of a minister. He had grown up very, very religious. He had, um, you know, he had attended revivals as a child. Um, he had gone to Christian boarding school. And 
you know, sacred to Christianity is the vow of marriage and the fact that it will never be broken. And for my dad to step back and like review whether or not he could still be a Christian and allow this truth to come out, um, it took that full three years. And I don't know if he would have done it if he hadn't have been exposed in some way. Well, let me take, I'm sorry to talk over Michelle here, but let me take that thing because that's exactly kind of what my next follow-up was going to be. It's like, if you had not come out, what that did happen, do you think might still have happened or might have happened in a different way? Or who do you think might have just kept going along thinking this is a part of themselves they're going to hide? Um, I will say, first of all, I don't think I could have not come out to me. Like the, 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 um, the, sort of schism in my sense of self and my identity had grown so, so large that I think that uh, there would be other self-harming things that happened until I came out. Um, but just for the sake of the thought exercise, um, look, my, my family is a group of like fairly brave people. I happened to be first, um, but any of us could have been first. And my brother, He's the youngest, but in many ways, he's actually the bravest. I have no doubt that he would have found his way to the truest expression of his identity, regardless of the decisions that we had made beforehand. Um, you know, also, let me be clear here. I'm an oldest child, which means that I basically think that I'm responsible for all good things that happen in my family. And I also know everything about my family. Um, so sure, I'll take some credit for the fact that I came out first and they all followed. I was just talking about this very thing with my older brother on National Coming Out Day. I sent him a, a text and it was a picture of him, I think, when he first came out. Um, and I said, thank you for coming out first, you know, in our family, because there's three of us out of five siblings who are wow. LGBTQIA+. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> and, I, and, and, you know, to be honest with you, I, I really feel like he did kind of set the course for many things that happen over the, the course of 20 years now. Um, you start the memoir off actually with your, with your mom's story. And uh, I, I had wondered why, you know, was it, was it easier, but then at the same time, it just so happens that the number one watched series on Netflix right now is about a serial killer. But yeah, tell us her story and kind of why you felt like, you know, maybe telling her story first in the memoir um, was a good idea? Um, it's a great question. And uh, it wasn't because I think that everybody's interested in serial killers. In fact, the fact that her story involved a serial killer felt a little bit confusing to me as a writer because I didn't want to write a book about a serial killer. But if you're going to mention one, your book becomes about one unless you're very, very careful. Um, but this is not a story about a serial killer so much as a story about what it means to be a young woman living in a context where you have to acknowledge violence around you. So my mom is a young, a teenager living in um, Ypsilanti, Michigan in the 1960s. And this is at the very beginning of the, the sort of moment in our culture where serial killers were something that everybody was paying a lot of attention to. And, and, um, uh, which is to say, like, it, this this was sort of undefinable uh, at, at first. But um, young women about her age started disappearing in her community. It's a small community. It was people that they knew. It was the assistant art teacher at the high school. It was the church deacon's secretary at his work. Um, and, you know, at first, you know, there would be a, 
a really gruesome death and a year would go by and there'd be another. And then just six months would go by and there'd be another. And by the time my mom was finishing up high school, um, Ypsilanti had worked itself into a panic, a very understandable panic. Um, young women were disappearing. They were all women who looked like my mom, like long brunette hair, often the earrings, like, um, and there was a curfew in town and many of the fathers had become volunteer police officers. And, you know, my mom was terrified because to live in Ypsilanti was terrifying as a young girl and because her parents were scared. Um, but also when you live in this context for months that turn into years, you learn to live with the terror. And so, you know, she had a, she had a part-time job at the local department store and, um, at the job, she developed a crush on a guy. You can, you know where this is going. Um, and she kind of started dating and started talking on the phone. She went to listen to him play music. Um, and, I, you know, fast forward to the day that the final victim is, um, is killed. And uh, they discover who the killer is. And the killer is actually this guy's roommate. And what is so confusing about this is that my mom has reason to believe um, that this guy is involved in the crimes. Um, and so she is, she has this like front front row uh, seat to what happens after that. And she also has this very close relationship and she um, specifically has, um, you know, this, this, um, I, I fear that I have confused you with my characters here. So I'm just going to tell, tell you their names. So Arnie is a guy she has a crush, crush on. Arnie works at the department store. Arnie's best friend, John, is discovered to be the killer. And on the day that that discovery is made, both Arnie and John are arrested. And my mom knows a thing. And the thing that my mom knows is that Arnie had that week, earlier that week, snuck up on her in a storeroom at the store and scared scared her, like terrified her, basically grabbed her in a chokehold um, and later made it as if it was a joke. But my mom had 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 that moment where she was like, oh, this guy, this guy could be the guy. And then, of course, he was arrested. Um, now, he got off in exchange for testifying against his friend. Um, he was never charged. Um, it is unclear whether he was an accomplice. He was likely an accomplice. It was unclear whether he was a murderer um, but what is most relevant here is that my, my mom's parents who loved her very much did what I think a lot of parents in the middle of the 20th century would do. And they said, okay, look, you, you need to never talk about this. This is awful. Um, it's over. Uh, Arnie called from the jail. Um, my grandmother picked up the phone. She hung up the phone. My mom heard that. Um, and then her parents never talked to her about it. They just wanted it to go away. So my mom keeps working at the department store. Her life keeps going. Um, and you kind of need that context also to understand what she saw in my father when she fell in love with him. Along comes this, if we're honest, slightly effeminate son of a minister um, who wants to get married right away. Um, and he meets my mom and she is ready for it. As Michelle mentioned, not only is this Dahmer series the number one Netflix show right now. But last week we were talking with both an actor from that series, as well as a woman who literally had been, 
who had tried to save one of the victims of, of Dahmer. Um, and that's a story, just having heard the story and remembering it at the time has stuck with me. So I, I, to then, you know, to, to hear about your mother and to read what she went through, um, it's, it's easy to believe that that would be traumatic is is an overused word, but, but that that would really stay with someone and be very difficult to process. Um, so tell us how it then, how she dealt with it when she did finally start to deal with it. I will say, I will say about that experience. Like, I think that there is, you know, my mother would sort of learn about the victims and she'd feel a little bit angry at them even. And, the anger would be like, why didn't you know better? The final woman who died, she um, she'd gotten on the back of a motorcycle with a stranger. He'd offered her a ride um, to a wig store. And at that moment in Ypsilanti, Michigan, you didn't get on the back of a motorcycle with a stranger. And my mom just was so angry at, at that. And the realization for her and for me was that um, she had to be angry at that woman for doing that thing because the opposite of that the simple compassion around like a woman just living out her, her daily life acknowledges what is actually more true, which is that um, we can't always protect ourselves, that we're all subject to all kinds of danger all the time that we, especially as young women in a culture um, can't uh, be expected. Even if we know that there is a curfew, even if we know that there is a killer on the loose who fits a certain profile, we can't protect ourselves from everything. Um, and I, I think that my mom, um, you know, as much as she turned that anger out, she also turned it in on herself, right? And it just festered, like, why didn't I do a better job? And what does this mean? And do I need to be scared of everything around me? And rather than getting any mental health uh, care over the course of my childhood, um, she turned her attention to creating the kind of family that um, was the kind of family she believed uh, was like the 20th century idyllic family. Um, you know, she married a great guy who became a lawyer and they had, you know, three little girls and we were cute and adorable and we went to church every single Sunday. And, um, you know, and she put so much love and energy into our birthday parties and our brownie Girl Scout troops. And, and she really did. She really, really did. Um, but all of that external energy couldn't mask eventually like the truth of the depression that came from having to finally acknowledge the earlier stuff. And so the, you know, the way that that sort of played out in my childhood was that she would be unpredictable. She, you know, she, she really was like did so many cool things, but then maybe for a couple of days for no reason that felt discernible, um, she would be, you know, spacey and unpresent and, um, lash out at us for things that we didn't understand um, that wouldn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, and it wasn't until she got um, the support in the, in the loss of her marriage that that got channeled into like more healthy outlets. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, one follow-up question was to, to ask how is she doing now? And then how did, you know, the loss of her marriage uh, or the dissolution of it affect her. And on top of it, it on top of it all uh, and kind of how maybe now, you know, instead of 
putting all of her energy into creating this family, she's uh, focusing more on herself. But perhaps it's a good segue also then to, I know that you had brushed um, over it a little bit and had already started talking about your dad's coming out. Uh, but, but yeah, you wouldn't mind answering the question of it, you know, the, the blow up, I'm imagining this blow up, right? And your dad um, coming out and then your mom going through all of this. And then finally, like something's got, something's got to happen. My, well, my mom's story is so cool because she, um, once she came through the blow up of her marriage and once she got the support, um, she saw how powerful that kind of support is. And she went back to school and she got a degree in therapy and she began working with um, well, all kinds of clients to begin, but really began to specialize her work in working with autistic children. And um, she's a profound healer. Like she took all of, all of the work that she was forced to do um, and channeled it into hopefully being the on-ramp for other people who have their own work to do. Um, but I will say this, um, that, the thing about a marriage ending when one person comes out of the closet is that that person has a community to go to, right? Like you, you come out of the closet and there are groups for you. There is like, you know, whatever your interests are. My dad joined a, a group of gay bikers that rode biked on the weekends and he found a gay church. Uh, and I keep using the word gay when referring to my dad, but I mean, a, sort of the broader queer, queer is the word that I really find sort of my home in, um, LGBTQIA plus community. Um, it, it welcomed him. It welcomed him at every turn. Um, when you are the spouse who is left as a result of a coming out, there is no like super group for you. Maybe there's a support group, but if there's a support group, it's probably not something that you want to be in after you have gotten the support that you need. Uh, you know, there is no flag for you. There is no social club for you. It's just a very lonely and alienating experience. And it makes the work that my mom had to do in order to find her way in the world, I think, um, that much more significant. Um, and I also just, you know, I also wanted to take a step back when thinking about the word coming out, because we're talking about my mom here, we're talking a lot about my mom. And she is the one person of the five of us who did not come out around gender or sexuality. Her coming out really had to do with um, coming out as a survivor. And I think that the process of working on the project really reshaped how I think about what it means to come out. And that is this. I think we are all born into a set of expectations we don't choose for ourselves, right? And um, I'd like to think that usually it's mostly out of love. Like our parents have an idea about who we'll be. Maybe our religious community does. Maybe the geography in which we've landed does. And, and rarely are we that person, right? And sometimes the ways in which we're out of alignment are, you know, small. Maybe they really wanted us to play baseball, but we actually love theater. Um, but certainly for my queer, um, queer members of my community, um, that, that usually felt like that misalignment felt very, very big. It felt like um, figuring out how to be the most authentic expression of myself meant really asking everybody around me to reshift how they thought of me. Um, and yes, that, that, that happens for queer people, but it happens for all kinds of people in all kinds of ways at many different points in our lives. And I, I really wanted to honor that and honor that my mom's coming out experience is actually 
to me, absolutely as valid as any of our coming out experiences. A thousand percent. And I think that's the reason why we ask it on the program. <laughs> I mean, in the, you know, not everybody is an LGBTQIA plus person that we inter- uh, interview here. But um, I, that's, I, and that's also why I'm, I'm so connected to your memoir be, because, because of this, because I wanted to share this importance of, it's not necessarily so focused on, you know, queer people coming out as it is about, we all have something to share. You know, we all have something about us that we can share, even if it's different. Uh, anyway, thank you, John. <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned Jesse, uh, your your mother and her role in counseling others when once she went back to school and such. Talk, if you will, about the the role of therapy that that different folks have have experienced in kind of in different ways, and what it does or maybe didn't do for you, and uh, just your approach to it. Um, I am a huge proponent of therapy. I love therapy, um, but I am not. Uh, I don't generally believe that someone else or some one other method can save us as humans, right? And so my my personal experience is that I worked with a number of therapists and some of them were more helpful and some of them were less helpful. And sometimes someone would be the right therapist for a period of time. Um, and then I would grow in such a way that it wouldn't be helpful anymore And what's important there is agency and self-reflection and being able to um, recognize when you think that maybe a certain tool or approach isn't helpful. And, um, you know, if you've read the book, you know that I got very involved in a a group that was um, sort of a modern day version of a like the sort of Eastern sensitivity training of the 70s. Um, which, you know, they do these weekend long retreats and it was like therapy on steroids. It was just like, it was, it was a lot of taking, um, responsibility for your life through these, um, exercises that you did. And I, I, in the end got so involved in that, that I needed somebody to like step in and help me step out of it. Um, I hesitate to use the word cults because I think you don't want to drop that word lightly, but this was a group that had like a lot of charisma and it was very hard to step away from it. But even that, um, I included it in the book because um, it was a form of healing. Um, it was a strategy that I used to discover new things about myself and my path that in the end, like really helped me. Should we talk about your siblings and, and they're coming out and kind of... Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that like, um, you know, we, we're talking a lot about like the act of coming out. But one thing that I really want the book to reveal is what it means to have someone come out to you, to have someone you deeply love in your life, who you're very close to come to you and say this thing that you always assumed was true about me is not. I am this other way. And I, I, I frame the stories of my siblings that way. Um, so that I can try to explain to you exactly how horrible I was um, when each of them came out to me. Uh, You would think that I would be better at that conversation because I had experienced it from the other end. I had come out to my family and I had been indignant about their responses and super judgy. 
Um, and then, you know, here's my sister who comes and says to me, you know, I, I think that I'm bisexual. And I just remember my first response was an eye roll. I was like, oh, come on, you just want to be like me, right? Like, you just want to be like me and dad. Like, okay, sure, you're bisexual. You know, she later married a woman. Um, it was her reality. And then maybe less than a year later, you know, my brother calls me up and says, you know, I, I would like you to use the male pronouns. I'm using the name Evan. And my first response to him is like, oh, oh come on, Evan. Okay. You wore a dress at Christmas time. Like we were just together at Christmas time. We talk all the time. Like you were wearing this long flowy skirt. You're, you're not a guy. And looking back on that, I, I just so deeply regret that. And I think that it is true that whenever somebody that we are that close to reveals some aspect of themselves to be different than we think, what it does is it reflects back on our own identities and it is threatening and it is scary because suddenly all of that is up for review in ourselves. We have to ask ourselves the hard questions in order to hear them well. Um, and, you know, the beauty of coming out is that it's a conversation. It is a conversation between a person who is revealing and a person to whom something is being revealed. And in a conversation, there are two opportunities. There is the opportunity to bravely speak your truth. And then there is the opportunity to receive. And I, I wish that I could just go back and do it better. That even if I didn't know what to say, because you never know what to say, that's fine. Just say, tell me more. Tell me more, right? With, uh, you know, dad, sister, mom, brother, uh, yourself, uh, dog, everyone coming out. Um, did any of you, uh, about any of the others, before each person kind of did their reveal, um, suspect? Or was it you were all kind of absorbed with your own issues or the facade that everyone was putting up that you didn't see any clues? You know, I love that question. I don't even have an answer to that question because I, I didn't ask it enough of my, my siblings and my parents, and I can't speak for them now. I can say I didn't expect it about my dad. Um, I didn't suspect it about my dad. And looking back, I'm like, why didn't I? I mean, the first thing that he gave me when he gave me a CD player was the box set of Barbara Streisand. Like, if I review the history of my life, there are a lot of clues here, right? Um, but I think we're blind to those those uh, those tells when we're talking about the people who we're closest to. I mean, what what do you think, John? Um, let's see. My sister came out probably I don't know ten years or something before I did, um, and so. I kind of had the thing where like she was older than me by the time I came out, it was like, okay, my family had been through this before. Um, you know, she stole the thunder. Um, at the same time, I, there was no concern of, Oh, I'm going to be disowned or that, you know, we went to a liberal church and family was fine. But, um, I, you know, when I kind of went out kind of doing my own kind of coming out as you, one does to all of your friends and, you know, you just at some point have to even let people know who aren't your friends just to kind of avoid any, you know, awkwardness later on or something. Um, the reaction, I didn't have anyone who said, oh, yeah, you know, I kind of thought or I was going to talk to you about that or something like that. Um, 
And I, and I, I think I wonder, and, and others can probably tell better than I can. I wonder if that is the more normal, the more frequent reaction of kind of like what you're talking about. Well, the, what you're, what you're thinking of yourself and what you're presenting to the rest of the world is kind of what others are seeing, unless there's something um, particularly, you know, you're, you're founding the Barbra Streisand fan club and uh, really getting into it a little too much. What do you think, Michelle? You've got a lot more experience at this. Oh, oh gosh. I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, I share with you, you know, Jesse, a little bit of the, um, I don't know. I don't know if you had described it as selfishness, but for me, it was like, I was, I, at first I wanted to be the only lesbian, you know, in the family. (laughs) And so when my younger sister and she didn't come out, it just so happened that actually I ran into um, her best friend in the Castro. I know you're here in San Francisco and her, her, at the time they actually were dating secretly. Uh, but the, the girl was with another person and, um, I had, I accidentally spilled the beans and I guess that's how my sister found out her first love was in a secret relationship with somebody else. And then I was just like, why didn't you, why didn't you tell me, you know, like you're, I'm supposed to be your hello, like your confidant, like the first person you tell because I came out before you and then, you know, I made it about me and I didn't make it about my sister. So that's a big regret that I have till this day. Um, and, and then, you know, kind of looking back though, it was like, how could we, how could we have missed the clues? I mean, my brother growing up would gather us in the garage and secretly teach us like cheer or dance. We danced to Paula Abdul and Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and then, you know, my my younger sister and I, we would secretly go and play off while my heterosexual sister and my gay brother kept dancing. But we would go and pretend like we were G.I. Joes or, you know, things like that. And, and that's when, you know, kind of when we all came out, we we had the sense of like, oh, well, duh. Right. Like, yeah. how did I miss that? Um, but, you know, Michelle... You know, the other thing is, though, those stereotypes, they, they, they help us. I mean, and they're like, they're sort of joyful in, in retrospect, right? But then they also sort of like, they let us down too. That, and that's the, that is what stereotypes do. And I think about my brother. My brother danced point ballet in high school and loved it and um, still talks about how much he loved it. And I really wanted to understand that because to me, I was like, well, that is one of the more feminine things I can think of, right? I might more expect, Michelle, that your brother would be doing that in the garage. Um, And so I I really spent a while unpacking that with him. And what he said was like, um, the thing that I loved about Point Ballet is that it was all about control. And at that point in my life, nothing was in control. And I could just put so much focus into control. And he said, yeah, I was different than the other kids. They were wanting to like, you know, go to Boston and be in the annual production of the Nutcracker. And I never cared anything about that. Um, but I, I really loved this, what, what you might think of as a feminine, feminine expression of, of art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. This is the, I was going to wrap up my thoughts by asking my next question, uh, which brings me to, you know, I've learned so much by growing up and living in a pretty queer dominant, you know, household with my siblings. And, um, and then obviously being a part of the community. And so I can only imagine for yourself and having, 
you know, your family and, and yourself and being part of the community of that, that has shaped, right. Everything that you feel, you know, you understand of gender identity, sexual orientation. Like, I feel like I, I know so much more and, uh, you know, knowledge and I'm such a better person because of how diverse like my family is. What about you? Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, first of all, I feel like being queer is my superpower in life. It is, It was my invitation at age 18 or 19 to not have to follow the rules that culture set for a young woman, but instead to select the ones that fit me um, authentically. So grateful for that. Um, and yeah, I, I just think that like being out in the process of coming out is like the great joy of my life. And, and and now I have my own children. You know, my children are three, actually four. My son just had a birthday this week, and uh, one. And I think about what it will mean for them to come out. Like I want them to always be in a household where whoever they bring to the table as their most authentic expression of self is welcome. Right? I kind of think Michelle that they'll read this book in fifteen years, and if we're lucky they will think it's really square, that it's old fashioned, that we as humans have become so much better at like the authentic expression of self, that even the way that we are talking about it now is narrow. You, you, you do a couple things I kind of want to get into, and I don't know if we have enough time, but so I'll throw them both at you and you can handle them however you want. One was what you were just talking about, um, kind of how you, how, if, how you as a parent um, hope to either model or encourage your parent, your children to be them, themselves. And, and if there is an actual coming out of some sort that they need to do when they, and how they would do it. But the other is um, you have a conversation with your brother um, or an exchange with him uh, in which you're talking about how you grew up with secrets in your family and everyone had their secrets um, and even now that you're 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 now the parents and you're you're the adult, there are still secrets that, that you're 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 carrying around and 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 such. Can you talk? Maybe start with that. That might be the, the easier thing to get into. But also, I thought I found that really fascinating that you got into that in the book. Um, I think what I think what you're referring to is this idea that um, like we've we've explored some of the territory in, involved in coming out. Um, but we still have all kinds of secrets, secrets that we choose to keep because secrets can be powerful and good. And, um, you know, deciding what you want to keep secret in your life and what you want to share is, is core to being an autonomous and independent human in the world. Um, and our children will have secrets too, and uh, they will need to make their own peace. And, um, but that is for them to figure out, right? There's no happy ending to this book. You simply like pass the baton in some ways. And, and when I think, I think to, to your first question, then when I think about my own children and what I want to model, um, I don't think that I can do it right, whatever that means, right? Like I, I you know, I watch the Instagram videos of Dr. Becky and try to uh, do what she says to do when my son throws tamper tantrums. Like I'm, I'm reading the parenting books, but I, I don't think that I'm going to get it terribly right. What I want is to be able to do what my mother did um, for the project which is, um, if you read this book, it will be very obvious to you. My mother and I had a difficult, difficult, difficult relationship. We did not agree on, we did not agree on many of the things in the book, but right from the start, she was the first one to say, 
go do this. Yes. You want to do this, do it. Like it's going to be hard for me and do it anyways. And that is when I want to find the strength and the courage to say to my own children, like what, you know, whatever you need to do, um, whatever you want to do in order to heal, in order to learn more about yourself, in order to contribute to the world, like you've got my support, even if it means, um, that it's going to be uncomfortable for me. I'm curious to know what your family thinks of the memoir uh, after reading it. I assume they've all read it. <laughs> um, yeah, they all have read it. In fact, I did something that my editor was like, why did you do that? Um, I insisted on giving every chapter to them as we went. Um, he advised me to wait until the end and then give them the book I'd written and be like, ta-da. And then, you know, they'd have a couple of weeks to make edits and to me, this book felt so personal and I was asking so much of them that I wanted them to feel like they had buy-in the complete way. So every chapter they got as I wrote, um, and then they've read it as a whole. And across the board, I mean, they have different reactions to it based on their different personalities. My sister is a very private person. It makes her uncomfortable to have this much information about herself in the world, although she says over and over again, she'd do it again in a second. She just doesn't want to be out talking about it a lot. Um, my dad's, um, my dad and my stepdad, um, they're like the cutest ever. And they came to New York last week um, for every book launch event and sat in the front row and basically did the equivalent of that's my daughter. Um, so it's like, it's, it's across the board. But the, the thing is that I, we managed to get to a place where like everybody feels proud of it in their own way. Um, and I'm just so grateful for that. Um, and what is the reaction to people who are not in your family? This book came out, if you'll forgive the term, a couple of weeks ago. So you must be getting some sort of feedback from the general public. I am. Um, and so far, um, I've heard from a lot of people who have closeted members of their family in big secrets. I've heard from a lot of people who have parents my dad's age who are gay but maybe never came out. And it was a big secret that their family held. I've heard from people who are trying to figure out how to come out and struggling with how to do that. And I've heard from a lot of um, parents of people who have come out who are trying to understand it and worried that they're doing or saying the wrong thing. Um, you know, and I heard from my like Becky Orr in sixth grade, right? I had to call Becky Orr up and be like, so I've written this chapter about you and um I could totally change your name. Like we could call you Stephanie or, um, and, uh, and that was like wonderful too. She was like, no, I love that you wrote this. Um, thank you for sharing it. So. Wait, that was her only response though. Like it was that the first time she found out that you loved her in that way. Um, yeah, I think it was. I totally think it was. Um, you know, she, she was my sixth grade best friend. We, I, we continued to know each other in high school, but, um, that middle school, friendship was where it was like thickest. And then we had done what adults do, which is you become Facebook friends with somebody. And then every five years they show up in your feed and you think, Oh, look, Becky or lives, you know, wherever she lives now. And so, you know, I wrote to her and I, I, I shared this. I was like, I want to send you the chapter. You can let me know how you would like me to handle it. And she wrote back and said, gosh, I had no idea that I might've caused you that much pain. And I'm so sorry. And I thought that that was such a generous response and that there's nothing to be sorry about. I mean, in middle school, we all cause each other all kinds of pain. And that's part of what it means to grow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about, you know, 
maybe that's a project calling up every single crush I've ever had since I was five, <laughs> including Sue. Let, <laughs> let me know how that project works out for you. <laughs> including Susan Lucci, by the way, because <laughs> yeah, I tuned into general hospital secretly, uh, but that's another story. Um, you know, you wrote this, the, the project, right, was COVID-19, and you had mentioned it at the very beginning of the program and, and getting into a space where feeling depression and feeling like, you know, you wanted to, things to mean more, I think is what you were saying. So now that we are coming out of the pandemic, kind of, sort of, I don't know, for some of us at least, what do you think is, is you know, the how would you like to share, right? Like you finished the book, you finished the project, you're sharing it with the world. And I imagine that by sharing information about your family and yourself and this discovery of relationships and, you know, the secrets that we hold, but being able to share our own authentic self. Now, how, for many of us who are navigating this pandemic, like what would you want to share about the importance of relationships our secrets, uh, how we share with each other, how we accept one another, you know, things like that. I mean, I think that the thing that I took away from working on the project was the power of listening um, and the grace that came with slowing down. So what the pandemic did for me in my life, uh, did a lot of horrible things and it, um, you know, made me spend a lot of time with my little babies uh, that I hadn't expected to spend, both good and bad. But it also just slowed everything down. And it was in that headspace that I then made time for these. We'd schedule them, these hour-long conversations. You know, today, Michelle, we're going to talk about that time we went on the road trip. So think about it. We'll talk about it. And then I literally would just listen. And that, I, you know, I took away, like, that is actually how I want to be in all my relationships. I want to revisit the ones that are important to me and make more space to ask questions and listen to the answers. Again, I'm an oldest child. So that was like a real aha for me because I did not, I did not grow up doing that. Was there any, you, you, you've alluded to there being some different interpretations of, of, of what had happened and such. Was there any, were there any angry moments when, when you were kind of trying to build these stories together into a book where someone's interpretation of it, collides with other, another interpretation of it and you have to either resolve it somehow or avoid it? I mean, or was it all that everyone was going through kind of a slowdown period and, and taking a breath and better able to process? And there were all kinds of angry moments and there continue to be. It's not like this book um, sort of helped us all to move into a place where now everything is like roses all the time. Um, but I think that the thing is that those angry moments were... Um, accompanied by just a ton of trust and goodwill. Um, and what I learned is actually memory is just fairly hopeless. Memory is something that I thought we would all rely on. And that if I compared all five of our memories, I'd be able to come up with one narrative that took you from the beginning of my family's life to the end. But even when five people are trying their very best to get the details right, they're nowhere close to right. And I mean, like, nowhere close. And somebody will remember, you know, that happened in 1982. And someone else will say, no, that happened in 1991. And someone else will say, that didn't even happen. By the way, it didn't matter. Um, and where we landed um, was actually that the emotional truth is more important than the factual truth. 
that sometimes our pursuit of the factual truth is a distraction from the emotional truth. And we landed in the emotional truth. There's so much there that I can take away. You know, I've been searching for 40 years of my life for the factual truth. My dad died when I was really young. And I, and, you know, I want to ask my mom so many questions and I want to find out like, you know, that side of my family and all this stuff. And I, I don't have the answers, uh, but I do know that it has caused, you know, emotional tension in our families, but perhaps I really shouldn't let my quest for the facts, uh, you know, get in my way of the emotional truths. So thank you so much, you know, for this memoir that is teaching us so much. If you don't have a copy of it, I do suggest that you grab it because um, I think everybody can take a piece out of, right, like this idea, this notion of coming out and our secrets. Jesse, what what is um, Pride Month like for your family now? Oh, um, well, gosh, it's been the pandemic. So I'm trying to think. I will say that, um, uh, you know, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, we took the kids to um, Brooklyn Pride and they were just like, oh my gosh, it's a rainbow parade for, you know, they, their experience of it was a rainbow parade picnic for me. And Brooklyn Pride is not like Manhattan Pride. It's a little bit more low key. It's much more it's like community oriented. Um, but this year felt different. And it's because this year being queer feels different to me. It feels like the things that I had taken for granted are suddenly up for debate again. Um, you know, I'm currently on my son's birth certificate, which is amazing to me. Like, go back and tell the 1990s me that that would ever be possible. Um, but that is a state document. And if gay marriage suddenly falls, then when we travel across state lines, I may not be recognized as my child's parent. Um, and by the way, I'm speaking as a white person in an urban area with a ton of privilege. Um, and so to me also, and I think to the rest of my family, like the pride events that had perhaps devolved into a really good time um, now feel political to me. And just being out feels like a political act to me. And it feels to me like um, if you can do it, it matters right now. That visibility matters. Tell, tell us a bit about your non-book writing life. You're a journalist, you work at LinkedIn. Um, I don't think most people would think of journalism and LinkedIn together. You know, you think of it more as a social media thing, but they've in fact built up quite a journalism operation there. So tell us what you're doing there and, and what you like about it. Um, yeah, well, so I do work on our editorial team and we have a huge editorial team at LinkedIn. And that is really because LinkedIn um, has always and continues to value the idea that like the, the you should become smarter as a professional on the platform. And you should be able to understand and digest the news as it's happening and as it relates to your career. And, um, you know, I think, you know, in contrast to other social networks where those ideas have sort of come and gone, LinkedIn made a commitment to this 12 years ago. Um, I've been with LinkedIn for four years. Um, I am helping to launch a podcast network at LinkedIn, the LinkedIn Podcast Network. We have great shows, super quality shows. And the flagship show is one that I host. It's called Hello Monday. It's about how work is changing, um, but but much more than that, it's it's about how we need to change in order to be um, ready and successful in a world where there are no rules anymore. Like nothing is clear about how you navigate your career. So what needs to be clear is you. Um, that's the sort of thesis for the show. 
And I'm curious to hear what you think about, right, as LGBTQIA plus people in the workplace, there have been, um, I think, a period of time where, right, like we could not come out. So we were forced to hold that as a secret. And then it evolved to now we're celebrated, especially during Pride Month. You work for a big corporation that celebrates Pride. Uh, but there's also this percentage, I think, of our authentic selves that we kind of shelve or, or leave at home, if if that makes any sense to you at all. Like, yes, we in some states, uh, you know, it's it's safe to put our family's pictures and all that out there. But culturally speaking, culturally speaking about being a thousand percent LGBTQIA plus in the workplace, where are we with that? Well, the office, office culture has its roots in the 20th century, right? And that version of office culture was a straight nine to five. It was a blue suited man. I think about the IBM salesman as the quintessential 20th century iconic office person. Um, And uh, here we are in 2022. And ostensibly, we have attempted to let go of as much of that as possible, particularly at more progressive um, companies like the one that I work for. But our roots are still there, right? Our roots still come from that. And so I I think about it, Michelle, as um, uh, that is why I need my queer-only communities. It is why, you know, and I'm actually, I'm involved in the ERG at LinkedIn. We have an amazing employee resource group, but also like I need my friends because I need a place where I can just really let down my hair. Um, And that emboldens me and empowers me to like open the door just a bit wider on my identity at work. and maybe have like have the energy to like educate. I mean, you know, because what you're talking about, I don't know if this is exactly what you mean, but like there's just all the microaggressions that go on because your colleagues who don't live in the queer community just say the wrong things or do the wrong things. And like on my on my worst days, I don't have the energy for it. I'm just like, okay, that's fine, putting my blinders on and I'm just gonna just gonna do what I know how to do to be successful. But when we have the support of our queer communities and we know who we are in the context of our friends, then I think that we can have our best days when we can like, you know, engage in thoughtful conversation with people who are truly different than us um, around those things. Yeah, no, it's exactly what I was talking about is where I feel like there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, still a lot more conversations to be had and a lot of coming out stories that we shall continue sharing uh, I think I, you know, I have one, you know, last question for you. And again, if you don't have a copy of um, Jesse's memoir, The Family Outing, you should grab a copy. I think it's for everyone, especially young folks. And so this question is for you, Jesse, for those who are possibly struggling with coming out, thinking of coming out. Um, what what kind of, you know, advice might you have? Mm. Um, well, First of all, size up whether it is safe for you to do that and honor yourself if you feel that it is not. Um, but we also know the Trevor Project says that if a queer young person has one safe adult in one's life, they're 40% less likely to hurt themselves. And so if you listening um, as a younger person, or as an older person, if you can find it in you to come out, if you can't quite figure out how to do it for yourself yet, do it for that younger person coming up who's going to see you and have the experience of having that direct impact on their life. Any last questions, John? I think that's actually the perfect place to uh, wrap it up. 
That's right. Yeah. Well, happy national coming out. I'm going to say week. I know that, you know, it is technically a day, but we'll keep Michelle. Every, every, every day is national coming out day at the Hempel household. That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I mean, y'all, it sounds like at both of your households as well. I know, right? (laughs) That's right. Well, thank you to all of you for joining us. And a special thanks, of course, to Jesse Hempel and sharing her memoir, The Family Outing. So I mean it. Please go grab a copy. 